Hi. So here we are in playwriting. I wanted to just kind of give a little overview of plays and what they do uh, for you to listen to and also as a way to have as we work through the course and explore different things. Uh, some of this is just basic common sense about what plays are, <laughs> uh, what dramatic writing is and what it does. Uh, and some of it is a little more informed by um, history of the form and uh, how we approach it as viewers and as makers of plays. Uh, so we live in a visual culture, uh, but we're hearing stories all the time. And, and to some extent, we're hearing people all the time. Uh, those of us who are hearing, uh, whether it's in person, whether it's on TV, whether it's in movies, whether it's on cell phones, etc., We're also reading. Uh, if you're looking at captioned work, we're also reading work all the time as well uh, in, in, in relationship to drama. Uh, so if you're looking at surtitles or if you're looking at captioned work. Uh, so there, plays are sort of always with us. In fact, I think that dramatic writing Film, television, streaming, web <laughs> series um, is the most ubiquitous form. So it's sort of interesting that um, sometimes playwriting is uh, what I call the bastard child of, uh, of literature. Um, often people talk about uh, fiction and poetry and the essay form and kind of leave playwriting aside. And I think there's some something about this has to do with the fact that it's a, a forum that's built on collaboration so that the writer uh, is one element uh, of text-based work, but not the only one. You have directors, you have actors, you have designers, uh, videographers, projection artists, animation artists sometimes. Uh, there's, you know, now we have like, uh, people who specialize in uh, working through digital performance and uh, making it look innovative and interesting and so forth. So I think that it's an elastic space for a writer to be in, right? Because I think in fiction, you know, it's the, the contract is between the page and the reader. In poetry, the contract is usually between the page and the reader. In spoken word, the contract is between the page, the reader, and the air. So the performance element enters into this. Um, in film, the contract is between the viewer and the, the visual product. Um, and it tends not to be interactive. But plays are inherently are. They rely on an audience. And, and you can make work, as a lot of the digital work that's happening now, you can make work that's self-contained. Um, and that somehow, I would say, not that it doesn't need the audience, but it kind of is created more like film so that it's, that it's created in advance and then the audience sort of experiences a pre-formed live event. Uh, but by and large, you're dealing with an audience that's live with you. And so I think that makes playwriting... Uh, a unique form. Um, 
but also one that we're very familiar with because we're watching dramatic writing all the time, especially, you know, on film and television and, and uh, on streaming platforms. Uh, so the idea that you're seeing narrative and non-narrative work, usually dealing with people's behavior, um, sometimes documentaries, sometimes fantastical, sometimes absurd, sometimes a mix of genres, sometimes horror, sometimes mystery. At the end of the day, it's sort of looking at something in motion. So I think one of the things to think about when we think about plays is to think that you're crafting something that is absolutely in motion. Uh, how that motion is determined, how you work across space and time is another matter. And it's really up to you in terms of your intentions with the work you want to make. Uh, dialogue, uh, famously, is, you know, when people think of plays, they go dialogue, right? It's dialogue heavy. Um, the thing about dialogue is that dialogue is action. So, so it's not chit chat. It's not a, it, it's not ancillary. Um, but it's actually carrying the work forward, even if it's dealing with, you know, flashbacks and flash forwards and all kinds of things in terms of what the story, however you want to build your, your narrative if you're working with narrative. You're always writing an event in time and your, your central elements in plays are space and time. So what are you going to do with space? The, how the space is regarded by an audience, how you're using it as a, as architecturally. Um, how figures relate to that space, so how bodies in action behave in that space in terms of background and foreground, and what's the density of that space? You know, is it heavy? Is it light? Um, right? What's the atmosphere of the space? And your other element is time. So on a practical level, what's the running time of a play? <laughs> is it five minutes? Is it 10? Is it 20? Is it one hour, two hours, 24 hours, right? So I think that um, that base brass tacks running time is something you always have to be thinking about as a writer because it determines how you structure, right? So if you're structuring a one minute piece, uh, you have less room to develop things than if you're developing a three hour play, right? It's just really simple uh, and, and super practical, right, to think. And I love to do that up front and to say that up front because I think it demystifies some things about structure because the choices you make around structure are completely based on the running time of what you're making. Um, but there's also the time of the play itself. So in story terms, uh, you know, historical time period that it's set, is it now, is it in the past, is it in several time frames? Um, but also, more interestingly, what's the breathing apparatus of the play? So a play uh, is something we breathe with. And so that's why I think to think about the audience uh, there with you as you're writing is really helpful because it's how we sort of move through the piece has as much to do with the narrative uh, that you're building as it does with the way the breath is constructed. And I mean this in a metaphorical sense, but also literally how we, you know, when people talk about how we sit through something, right? So sometimes it's like a piece that runs an hour and it feels long. Uh, and we look, why? Why is that? Well, it has something to do with the way maybe the theater maker, the artist that was building it and their collaborators, maybe how they were 
maybe not thinking or not thinking enough about how the piece was going to land and how an audience was going to breathe through the events that are being constructed and, and kind of there for our regard and contemplation. So thinking about space and time, uh, space, the space that the play is in, and this can be a physical space. So thinking about that in terms of architecture, whether it's outdoors, whether it's indoors, if it's indoors, what are the dimensions? And even if you don't know, ultimately where the play is going to be staged. And often as writers, uh, you don't have much say in that, uh, ultimately, until you sign the contract. Um, but still thinking about it as a, just even when you're imagining what the play might be, I think there's something interesting about thinking, well, this play might be like in a 500 seat house with uh, an audience of, I don't know, 200 or 500, uh, but maybe it's 250 with social distancing. And, you know, the stage is set up so that the stage is really close to the audience or it's very far. Just thinking about, again, the architecture of what the space might be sometimes allows you as a writer to make some very quick decisions ahead of time about how you're going to build something. If the play is set outdoors, um, then there are all different kinds of challenges. And what are doors? Is it a park? Is it a garden? Uh, is it under a tree? Is it next to the railroad tracks? <laughs> uh, you know, like what's the ambiance? What's the sound like? Uh, is there going to be interruption of sort of diagenic sound? How is that going to affect the work? That factors into your materials, right? So I think, so So a lot of things that I'm throwing at you, but uh, keep in mind, space and time, and also what are the materials you're, that you're going to use to create the event that you want to create. Plays are events. And it's a big event, and inside of it are little events uh, that sometimes are called the narrative, but sometimes are just events <laughs> that happen over a specific time period that an audience breathes through and with the performers and the piece. So that's the, that's the short version, nuts and bolts. So I wanted to throw that out first of all. Uh, there's also um, uh, so I'm just going to go over some just basic things. Um, you know, watching people interact is a really great rule of thumb when you're trying to write a play. Um, it's uh, where sometimes you get your best ideas, and it's really just about looking at human behavior. And I think that even if we're writing about animals or robots <laughs> uh, or fantasy figures, um, it comes from somewhere, you know, so it comes sometimes from thinking about your family or thinking about your childhood or thinking about your friends or thinking about strangers you watch on the street, thinking about your neighborhood. Like plays come from many different places. They sometimes come from the news and you're wanting to respond to something on the news. Uh, but the idea of looking at interaction how do figures, bodies, and space uh, interact with each other is at the core. Um, you're looking and thinking about tone of voice and gesture. Um, and, you know, we're all born actors, right? So uh, as, as children in the playground, by and large, uh, play uh, is central, right? Uh, in fact, I think thinking about how children play uh, is really useful to thinking about how you want to play as a playwright uh, and as a theater maker. 
uh, or a maker for dra of dramatic writing and, and other mediums, uh, TV and film. Uh, because at the root of all of it is uh, thinking about the playground again. There's a wonderful game, uh, games designer, pretty seminal in the field, named Bertie DeCoven. Bertie, B-E-R-T-I-E. -E. Then the last name is D, D as in David, E, Coven, K-O-V as in Victor, E-N. Bertie DeCoven, you may know of him. Very famous games designer. Um, early, like early in the days of, of video gaming. And um, he has this extraordinary book called The Infinite Playground, uh, which is kind of like a Bible for, for uh, a lot of people who work in the world of play and gaming and game design. Plays, writing theater, writing plays, writing <laughs> play-like things that look like films or look like TV is essentially rooted in design, play design, right? So, so if we scale back and think about game design uh, and how it's evolved, it's actually all based on play design. So how are playgrounds designed? How are games designed for children to play, for adults to play? Uh, I think thinking of those terms allows you as a writer to then look a little more conceptually about the work that you're making, but also to free yourself into understanding that you're not honor bound to only certain narratives that you can tell, um, but that actually it is an infinite playground and it, it's all about how you design it. <laughs> uh, and really that's why I used the word architect before, because it's about architecture and design uh, when you're writing plays. Um, so here are some other things. People are born actors. We are all born actors. Uh, somewhere along the way, sometimes, you know, as we grow into adulthood, uh, that gets stifled. That sort of idea of, of being in the playground uh, gets kind of shut away. Um, so there's something interesting about, as a playwright, that you're kind of calling that back up within yourself, but you're also allowing yourself to see the performance of everyday life, you know, how people behave on the street is different from how they behave at home with their family or friends or lovers or partners. Um, it's different from when they're in school. It's different from when they're, right? So I think that uh, there are many different kinds of performances that we're always observing, even in, the, in everyday life. Uh, and that's all you, all of that is something you can draw upon is the more observant you are, about how people perform. Uh, you can bring that to bear when you start crafting, if you're working with characters, or when you start crafting characters and, and building uh, what we call stories, which stories are basically just a way, a way of understanding the world, to be honest, right? So store, we create stories as writers because we're trying to figure something out <laughs> about the world uh, or about ourselves or about our situation, you know, current situation or about something in our past. And we use a story sometimes as just a vehicle to kind of create order, an order for to make meaning, in order to have understanding. Um, so stories are a way to make meaning, but they're not the only way to make meaning, right? Um, but they're a useful way to make meaning because um, there are certainly, there are certain story structures 
that audiences are, and readers and viewers are hardwired already to respond to. Uh, and so you can manipulate uh, existing story structures to your advantage, even if you subvert them or break them or dismantle them or whatever you want to do with them, right? If, if you tap into some hardwired stuff that an audience is going to respond to, you kind of get their buy-in, right? You get their trust. Um, it's why a lot of people sometimes work with the horror genre or mystery or uh, the rom-com or, you know, things that already exist in a way, genre tropes that already exist, because they're a way of kind of getting an audience's trust really quickly. If an audience recognizes what the tropes are uh, early in a play, they'll they'll know what kind of ride they're going to be on, right? So think about this. Think about being at an amusement park and having to choose from five different rides. And one of them is Space Mountain, and the other one is the Haunted House, and the other one, right? So if you know which ride, you sort of have an idea in your head about what that ride might be. Until you're in the ride, you don't really know, right? But you have a little bit of an awareness. So um, I think that's true with plays. I think when you're crafting plays, somewhere in the back of your brain, you're thinking about that. And sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you're writing and you discover uh, what the what the genre modes you may be tapping into are. Um, other things, like poetry, and I think playwriting and poetry are intimately connected. Like poetry, playwriting is a genre that makes maximum use of few words. So when I say to you, you may be writing a 10-minute play, and that's about 10 pages, one and a half spaced, <laughs> um, there might be this look of panic in your eyes, but actually it's not panic. It's like really simple. It's usually a minute a page uh, of stage time, of running time, of breathing time, of embodiment, right? You're writing for embodiment. And when you're writing for embodiment, um, you know, it's about performers inhabiting the work. It's about letting the language have its time. And, and I think what I mean by that also is that there's cause and effect. So a line of dialogue is spoken. It lands not only in the air with an audience, but it lands with the other performer on stage if there's more than one. Um, it's received. So it has to be received. And then the next line of dialogue is, is, a, is a response to that line. It's not automatic. Uh, I think sometimes in daily life, um, dialogue seems automatic, and sometimes it is, like uh, in grocery stores or in pharmacies and so forth when you're just kind of doing something perfunctory. Oh, uh, but what I will say is that most of the time, hopefully, uh, someone says something and you're kind of taking it in. So somewhere in your unconscious or your subconscious, you're taking it in and you're, you're figuring out a way to respond. Um, sometimes on the surface, it looks automatic, but actually the brain is doing a lot of work uh, and your emotional life is doing a lot of work to figure out the right response. So, so when you think about plays, it's about looking at that cause and effect. Uh, and obviously there are forms of playwriting like the absurdist tradition which subverts all of that, right? Where, where cause and effect 
sort of flies out the window, <laughs> um, and language is treated differently. But but just for the for the start of this, because some of you may be new to this form, it's just something to bear in mind. And that's what I mean by language as being action, because what happens is somebody says something, it flies through the air, it lands, it gets picked up, there's a decision made, another response happens. The other way I think about this is to use the analogy of tennis, uh, the sport, or you can plug in any other sports motif you want, but in tennis, it's so clear, right? Because the ball is long, you know, you serve. So think of the serve as being the line that's being spoken. It goes across the net, hopefully. <laughs> um, there is a response from the other player, right, in a singles game. And then that response, you know, you don't know, right? How is the other player going to respond? They may, they may throw a lob. They may slice. They may, you know, do a short a short kind of response with the racket. Um, they, may, they may respond with an off-top spin, right? You know what I mean? So I think that thinking about tennis as a metaphor sometimes helps in writing plays because it helps you understand that what you're crafting is that you have a playing field and you have players, like literally players, <laughs> and things are happening between them uh, as they would in a game right? Which is why I thought what I said earlier about game design and about architecture and about play design, that you're designing, you're designing play. Inside of that, there may be story. And inside of that, there may be plot. Uh, and inside of that, there may be characters. Um, so a little bit on etymology. A person who engages in playwriting is called a playwright. <laughs> That's easily said. A right, so W-R-I-G-H-T, is a worker, a worker skilled in the manufacture of objects, such as a wheelwright or a shipwright, right? So this is a craft, this is a craft aspect of playwriting. It's just a brass tacks. It's like, what do you do? You're a craftsperson. You're a craftsperson in sort of play design, and you have certain tools at your disposal, and you deploy them, right? Um, from this perspective, the author of a play is a craftsperson, someone who covers the basics. A wheel won't roll if it's not round. A ship will sink if it's not built soundly. Similarly, a play that doesn't incorporate the essentials, and this can be argued. Um, so in some conventional terms, those essentials are conflict, character, dialogue, and stagecraft will falter. Conflict, character, dialogue, and stagecraft. I will say that there are other essentials um, that are counter to this. They could be rhythm. It could be movement, it could be music, it could be dance, uh, it could be tension, but not necessarily conflict. Uh, it could be juxtaposition, right? So there are other ways of thinking about this. But, you know, for first, if this is your first time writing plays, it's useful just to sort of have it in your back pocket to think about conflict, character, dialogue, and stagecraft, just as a way of initially building. One of the things around game design is that uh, you're often dealing with how to how to sort of negotiate trial and error for a player, right? So uh, what are the variables around trial and error? Uh, what are the rules of engagement? So that's all that you're crafting. And within that, then it's like, how do those rules manifest, right? So um, if, if think about the first person, whoever created the game of football, for example, um, 
you know, somebody came up with those rules, right? So, so that's actually what you're doing as a playwright. You're coming up with all the rules, <laughs> but you're also, like I said earlier, based on rules that have existed before. You have the whole history from all over the world of theater making and playwriting and dramatic writing at your disposal, including television and film, including spoken word and poetry. Uh, theater started out as a, as a poetic realm, right? In the, in the world of poetry to begin with. So you have all of that, which is a little bit daunting, right? But it means that you can lean on it. You can be like, hey, you know, um, I can use those, a lot of those different tools that exist from my ancestors or from my predecessors that have done this before so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel every single time. And I think that sometimes as writers, we think we have to, but you don't have to. You can actually sort of, especially if you're just working on your writing muscles, you can sort of look at how, how, how sorry, how other, getting like notifications, how other writers are um, incorporating and crafting the rules of the game. So you can like, you know, absorb from them and learn from them. You know, uh, it's one of the reasons why, you know, even in any kind of writing, it's like the more you read, the more you know how to write because you're just looking at how different writers craft and how different writers handle the rules of engagement. So the rules, how a novel is set up or how a memoir is set up or how an essay is set up. Yeah, so same with plays. The more you sort of read, the more you absorb dramatic writing. And again, you've probably seen like a thousand films and a thousand things streaming. So you already have a lot of this in your back pocket. Um, but maybe now it's looking at how to analyze it, right? If you don't normally do that. If you're normally just a, a passive viewer, uh, sort of taking it in and experiencing it, which is a valid thing, absolutely valid to understand why you love something. Uh, but then the second step is to figure out, oh, how did that get made? You know, why is that working on me the way it is? It's obviously intention behind it, right? The people that made the thing are trying to do something and they made choices around what they made. It didn't just sort of happen out of thin air, right? Um, so there's that. Um, on the subject of etymology, let's also look at two more things, drama and theater. Uh, sometimes this is used interchangeably, so I thought I'd bring it up. Uh, the word drama comes from dron, D-R-A-N. It's a Greek word uh, meaning to meaning to do or act, hence plays or action, right? To do or act. <laughs> um, by definition, drama is action. Uh, it does not simply consist of people standing on stage uh, saying lines, yeah? Um, well, I will say about that is that I think sometimes in spoken word, it may seem like that, <laughs> but actually there's a tremendous amount of action in spoken word, usually, uh, from the linguistic end of things, but also from the emotional, from the way rhythm is deployed. So, so I think there's a fallacy sometimes around thinking that if somebody's just standing there saying things, that nothing's happening. In fact, if you're writing that kind of work, you actually have to pay more attention to action and leaps of thought and line breaks and shifts of emphasis and yeah all those things that create uh, motion right um it's useful to create conflict between your characters just because dialectic makes fireworks happen and i mean that in the best sense in the most in the easiest sense if you have opposing forces in a story even if they're gentle 
gentle opposing forces, you get attention, you get some conflict going, and it helps move things forward because then you have an obstacle in the way, right? If, if two characters are polarized, even, even in small ways, or, or discover that they're polarized in small ways, uh, opposing each other or find out that they oppose each other, uh, you have some conflict to work with, and then you can sort of work the story around that. So it's, it's about giving yourself a little bit of empowerment as a writer uh, to think about conflict and why it is seem to be, seems to be integral to the nature of playwriting. Uh, in plays, uh, by and large, this is a blanket statement, but I'll say it anyway, people tend to think, take things very personally, right? So characters really do respond. You are dealing with kind of like life and death kind of stakes, even if the narrative is not literally life and death, right? Um, but there is a thing that things have to happen, right? So um, it's another way to think about it is that it's not decorative, right? So language and action in plays, uh, visual action and spoken action are not decorative. They're all kind of in the service of making the playing field and the game design really strong um, so that things can occur, right? Um, so that things can be set in motion and, and kind of change, right? So I think that one of the things we often look for in plays and and I use we to mean all of us writers, writers in the room. <laughs> um, we're looking for a way to have a transformation of some kind. You put an event in space because you want to communicate something, but often there's also an act of transformation involved. The audience is transformed by what they're seeing. Um, the performers are transformed by what they're, how they're inhabiting the work. Uh, the theater maker and the writer is transformed by making the thing initially. So, so it's not a, it's not a one-way street. I think the act of transformation is embedded in the game design, uh, but sometimes we don't know it. Sometimes we discover it as we're writing the first draft, especially. Uh, the other word theater, speaking of etymology, the other word theater is derived also from the Greek, and it means the Greek word thea, T-H-E-A, and it means to see, to see something. So the act of contemplation, the act of regarding, really essential uh, to consider. What are we regarding? What are we throwing light upon? What are we throwing focus upon? Uh, and why? Uh, helps you actually craft what you're going to craft in a play the more you understand what we see. So it's not only what we see visually, but it's also like why, the why behind it. It's sort of like when you're taking a photograph and you go, no, I want to take a photograph of that corner instead of that corner. There's Because there's something in that photograph that's drawing your attention. And that's the same thing with writing a play. You're trying to draw attention to something to re allow us to regard something and give it attention. Uh, and one of the things about plays is that it demands to some extent, undivided attention from an audience and the viewer, uh, which means that what's before us to regard and contemplate has to command our attention. Even if it's done gently, you know, it doesn't mean it's all shock and awe, right? It could be just a gentle thing or a tender thing that we're witnessing, but 
it commands our attention. It draws us in, right? So just thinking about it in terms of the word theater. The other related word to theater, uh, also from the Greek, is a word called thauma, T-H-A-U-M-A. Not trauma, although sometimes theater deals with trauma, but thauma. Thauma means miracle. And I think that this aspect of playwriting sometimes gets not thought about. It's just shoved to the side or forgotten. But actually, we're dealing with both the act of contemplation regarding attention, demanding attention and commanding attention, claiming the space, enacting the space and embodying it, but also the enactment of a miracle. Uh, and I mean this in the secular sense, right? Even though originally... Uh, a lot of plays began in religious rituals uh, uh, and pagan rituals, right? So, but that the idea of the miraculous is inside of plays when you're building them. Uh, it's just useful to have in your back of your mind. I know it's crazy to say, go write a miracle right now. But, <laughs> but there is something about when you've finished crafting the game, and all the players inside of it, and all the moves in the play, in the field of action, something miraculous can happen. And th another way to think about this is, because uh, we we know this as viewers, right, uh, of TV and film and, and other sort of plastic forms, um, is that sometimes we go, oh yeah, that was okay. Yeah, that was all right as a viewer. And then sometimes we see something where like, oh my God, that changed my life. Or, oh wow, that like really just kind of fired me up. Oh, sorry, another notification. Um, and, and what I will say is that I think that when that happens, when a, a piece of art is able to kind of turn you outside of the mundane, outside of the... Of... Uh, shrug you know oh okay the oh, okay moment and more like oh my god moment or this is amazing moment or that's like blew my mind moment or or i didn't know i could ever think like that moment right there are many ways of of treating this kind of moment of the miraculous from a viewer's standpoint there's something in the from the maker side of it from the writer side of it and the collaborator side of it that's been attuned to and alert to the idea of the miraculous, uh, which has to do a little bit with lifting the work, right? It's not just, you can write a slice of life, but it can't just be a slice of life. There has to be something else going on. Uh, and sometimes in work that seems on the surface to be purely slice of life, there's a lot of subterranean, uh, uh, deep emotional stuff that's happening. Uh, that that can then move into the realm of the miraculous. There's a writer, um, oh my gosh, he's very old school, but uh, kind of extraordinary, and, and I've been thinking about his work a lot, and his name is Horton Foote, H-O-R-T-O-N, Foote, F-O-O-T-E. He wrote the film version of To Kill a Mockingbird way back when, back in the day, and um, and. I don't know, I think over like 50 plays or something. Uh, he wrote about a town in Texas that he invented. I mean, he was from Texas, but he didn't want to write about that town. He wanted to sort of create a town that was sort of like the town that he grew up in. And he wrote like 10 plays that were all set in that town. 
And the plays on this on the surface uh, seem as if uh, nothing's happened. You know, they're like quiet. Uh, there are people going about their daily lives. Um, there's some conflict, but it's not like uh, outrageous, you know. Uh, but slowly, in the best of his work, something miraculous occurs. There's a there's a sort of awakening of the spirit. Um, so very spiritual. There's something about how the landscape seems to change. Uh, the moral ground of the play seems to change. Uh, so yeah, so I think, I don't want to belabor this, but I think thinking about the miraculous, in addition to the act of seeing and the act of doing, allows your work to lift, lift up and up, uh, and kind of take on a different kind of charge in the space. Uh, so maybe it's thinking about it that way. Um, and, you know, on a, on a basic level, is it a static spectacle that you're creating? No, you're creating something that's in motion. So I think that uh, you're you're bringing to bear uh, that act of transformation and the reawakening of transformation in everyday life, which is why plays are also there's so many things. Plays are also about a critique uh, of the status quo, a critique of the social political order, um, they're in discourse with the world, even if they're very internal. Uh, and some plays are very internal on the surface, but actually somewhere inside of it, there's a discourse with the world at large. Uh, and sometimes more overtly, sometimes there are plays where they're announcing the fact that they are overtly dealing with the world at large, um, and that's fine. Uh, but But I think that that is also an area, another notification, sorry about that. Uh, that's also an area where you can have a play lift when it suddenly is like not just here with the characters and their situation, but then how is that related to a larger big picture? So you're sort of thinking about framing when you're writing. How is this framed in a larger sense? Uh, so I just want to throw that out there before I forget. Um, Ba, 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 ba. Other things I wanted to put into the mix here. Um, some things, well, I, th I guess I'll mention this. Uh, I think I have already, but I'll sort of put it in the room. You know, in the 19th century, uh, Emile Zola, who's a novelist, championed naturalism. Uh, which a lot of people think of as realism, but actually it's different. <laughs> um, uh, for Zola, the novelist, Emile Zola, um, naturalism was about mastering verisimilitude, right? So realistic portrayals of people and their environments. Um, in, a, in an almost scientific or clinical sense, uh, realism goes beyond that. But I'm going to start with naturalism. So in naturalism, this is a quote from, is it from Zola? I guess so, yeah. Uh, Zola referring to naturalism. 
I am waiting for everyone to throw out the tricks of the trade, the contrived formulas, the tears and superficial laughs. I am waiting for a dramatic work void of declamations, majestic speech, and noble sentiments. To have the unimpeachable morality of truth, and to teach us the frightening lesson of sincere investigation. I am waiting, finally, until playwrights return to the source of science and modern arts, to the study of nature, to the anatomy of humankind, to the painting of life in an exact reproduction more original and powerful than anyone has so far dated to risk on the boards. Zola's ideas influenced two of the 19th century's greatest playwrights, just in the world, the Russian playwright Anton Chekhov, whose work you may be familiar with. He wrote The Cherry Orchard, Three Sisters, The, sea the Seagull, excuse me, and all of it that you can access in translation, obviously, unless you speak Russian. And uh, the other uh, very influential 19th century playwright was the Norwegian playwright, Henry Gibson, uh, who also sort of took Zola's ideas about the novel and kind of getting down to, in a great way, to kind of a clinical observation of, of, of life uh, in a very realistic sense, honoring, I think, also putting at the center of stories uh, the heroic aspect of the everyday rather than necessarily the worlds of people that are in power. Uh, so in that era, uh, often you had stories about kings and queens and, uh, and so forth. So, but instead, Zola was like, I want to write about my neighbor <laughs> and their life, right? And so honoring that life gives it focus and makes it shine and gives it power, right? So I think there's politically, there's something really strong about that. Uh, but but naturalism as a mode, what it's trying to do is hone in on that from a clinical perspective. And of course, over time, uh, that mode has evolved. Uh, uh, and it's evolved, uh, the next stage of that was 20th century with realism. Uh, and so realism is difficult because I think what's happened to realism, it's become the default form, a mode, I should say, or a genre, uh, but it's not a default at all. It's just another way of kind of painting, another way of creating a game design. Uh, some people, the game design is absurdist and some people's game design is symbolic and some people's game design is naturalistic in <laughs> some people's game design. You know what I mean? So it's like, uh, what I think is fascinating about realism is that it's maybe because of the advent of photography and the birth of cinema, which ironically cinema is an incredibly abstract form and not really realistic at all. <laughs> um, but it has the illusion of realism often, uh, especially narrative cinema. Uh, and so, Realism has sort of become a default, um, but it but it, it totally is not. Um, so a little bit of realism, sort of an evolution of naturalism, um, and there were and I think to this day, uh, realism is a 
oh, how can I put it? Sort of the punch, the, I'm going to put it bluntly, the punching bag of a lot of theater, right? You know, so a lot of people sort of making work in the dramatic realm. Oh, realism, it's so boring. Raw realism, it's, you know, people have been saying that for a very, very long time, for like hundreds of years, right? So um, I think the thing about realism is that when it evolved from naturalism, it was exciting. I think what's happened is that because it's become a, a sort of default mode, weirdly, and not in all cultures, by the way, but uh, a great many of them, surprisingly, and again, because of the birth of cinema um, and its tendency to be photorealistic unless it's working in science fiction or fantasy, um, it's gotten a bad, bad rap, you know? Uh, but of course, it's also created that sort of tension and rebellion against realism has created some amazing new forms. So Bertolt Brecht in Germany in the late 20s and 30s and 40s um, developed a new kind of theatricality that he called epic theater. Uh, and this is theater where actors make no attempt to pretend they're actors. Uh, it emphasizes the fact that it's a play, not real life. So there's no fourth wall. Um, you're not, you know, the actors admit that we're in a play and the audience knows we're in a play and, you know, it's very overt in its machinations. It's, um, you know, actors in Brecht's time, Brecht is B-R-E-C-H-T, in case you don't know, um, would wear like cheap, you know, would wear whatever clothing was on the rack to represent their characters. If they were, wearing, if they were playing characters, they would use really cheap props. Uh, in other words, to sort of expose the fact that we're in a theater and this is not real. Uh, and the only real thing that's happening is that there are people on a stage when other people in the audience and that we're crafting an event together, which is always true, right? But I think that the rebellion against realism created epic theater, right? So that an epic theater, you know, what sometimes we call meta now, uh, stems from that kind of rebellion. So it's, a, it's, it's been with us for a long time. Other playwrights historically have taken the crusade against realism even further. Antonin Artaud, uh, French symbolist, visionary, uh, neurodivergent uh, theater maker and philosopher, I think, of theater. Artaud, A-R-T-A-U-D, in his plays, like The Spurt of Blood, uh, characters represent types, priest, knight, judge, right? So they're just functionaries. And they declaim uh, gibberish or uh, kind of unintelligible poetry and run around the stage, like, uh, you know, in ways that are not like symbolized in real life. <laughs> um, uh, thumbing, basically thumbing its nose at conventional variety of plots and characters and so forth. It's a type of theater that's full of spectacle, noises, sounds, unexpected lighting, bizarre onstage behavior. Um, and as Artaud himself said when he was trying to discover this kind of theater, is here the theater, far from copying life, puts itself wherever, whenever possible in communication with pure forces. Um, 
Artaud was great. You know, he was a philosopher and had many issues. And he was also known for something called theater of cruelty. So I really wanted to push limit. Um, um, and I think that there, there are a couple of artists historically have been followed in that tradition, but not many. Um, but I think remnants of what Artaud was after also a rejection to realism as a genre and form was to kind of liberate theater into another realm, into a realm that was radical and uh, extreme. Um, and so it's just something to bear in mind. Um, the theater of the absurd, so I'm just gonna jump through history just a little bit. A theater of the absurd, uh, sometimes called absurdism, <laughs> um, led to like a lot of great plays. Uh, probably one that you may know is Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett, uh, sort of the exemplary play of the theater of the absurd. By the way, I will say that this is not a term that Beckett himself used. Uh, this is a term that was applied to his theater by a critic and scholar named Martin Eslin, who wrote a book called Theater of the Absurd. Uh, so sometimes when I say the critical function of theater, so people that are critics and scholars and are studying the work of artists are trying to look for signs among the work and are there movements. And, and sometimes writers are part of movements that they are leading and they self-proclaim. But a lot of the times they're just making their work. And then a critic and a scholar comes along and goes, oh, like these five artists are doing this must be theater of the absurd, right? You know, so I think that it's sort of looking for language to interpret a body of work, but maybe disparate writers. So Samuel Beckett comes into that category of theater of the absurd. So does um, early career Martin, uh, excuse me, Harold Pinter, uh, who's a writer that uh, worked a lot with um, what I call the, with well, not only I call it, but the uncanny, uh, with elements that were uh, in disjunction from what we're seeing, or sometimes just slightly. Uh, Pinter's interesting to think about in terms of theater of the absurd, because it's not like absurd, anything goes, ha-ha, which is, I think, how sometimes think people think of the absurd theater. But it's more like, I think I'm looking at something that resembles real life as we may believe in it or know it collectively agreed upon in society. And then inside of it, there's the aspects of the eerie or the strange. Um, there's a play of his called The Dumb Waiter, which is a short play where dumb waiters uh, in like old apartments and hotels there used to be this machine that you would put your like food tray um, you would make an order like for room service and it would appear like in a kind of look something that looked like an elevator, like a small elevator shaft <laughs> in your room. And it was called a dumb waiter. Uh, and then, you know, it, you would open this kind of little door and your food would be there. And you would take the tray out and eat it in your room and you were done, you put the tray back and it would go down a chute and it would end up in the kitchen somewhere and all of that. Um, he wrote a play called The Dumb Waiter which uses that device, which, you know, is about people in a hotel room. <laughs> uh, but inside of it, it's really interesting. 
weird things start to occur, you know, just like uncanny things between and among characters. Uh, sometimes like the this shoot, the actual machine of the dumbwaiter doesn't operate correctly or it doesn't send what the characters ordered. You know, it's sort of interesting. It's like the theater of absurd is, deals with existentialism, right? It deals with existential crises. And it's actually a very useful form for times of crisis, right? Because I think it's a way to grapple with things going wrong in the world. Um, when Beckett was writing Waiting for Godot, he was responding to what was happening with the Second World War. And he was feeling, you know, if you study a little bit about the history of Beckett, you know, he was feeling like, well, he was feeling adrift and bereft and he didn't know what to do. Um, he was in exile in France for, and from Ireland and and he was wrestling with the fact of what do I make uh, to respond to the horrors of the world. Uh, so he, he was himself in an existential crisis as a writer and through that a play like Waiting for Godot happened, right? So in that play, two homeless people, two vagabonds, clowns, they're sort of clowns in a way in the play, but not clowns like the funny nose clowns, but clowns and sort of idea of somebody who's clowning uh, are stuck. They're stuck under a tree. It's probably the end of the world and it's only them and they're waiting for Godot, which, you know, is short for God. Uh, and, and of course, you know, Godot never arrives. Not giving anything away by saying that. Uh, it's an existential play about the disorder of the world. And the way that Beckett treats it is with uh, sort of vaudevillian humor, uh, repetitious loops of dialogue. Uh, people caught in routines with themselves. It's a very interesting play by a contemporary writer uh, named, uh, uh, her name is Antoinette Nwandu. She's of uh, Nigerian origin and her last name is spelled N-W-A-N-D-U. And uh, there's a play of hers called Passover, P-A-S-S-Over. Uh, which had a premiere in Chicago at Steppenwolf Theater um, two years ago. I think two years ago. Three years ago? Uh, in any case. Um, and it was filmed. The performance at Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago was filmed by Spike Lee. Uh, uh, and that film uh, you can see on Amazon Prime. So he filmed the production, uh, but in his spikely kind of way, <laughs> which means that there's a lot of, you know, the editing is very, has a, has a point of view. Uh, it's not just like, I'm going to be objective about as if there is such a thing, but <laughs> the camera is not objective in other words, uh, in that film performance. Pa I mentioned Passover because it's, a it's, a it's a conversation with Beckett's Waiting for Godot, um, structurally. 
Uh, and in fact, when Antoinette was writing the play, she would tell people, I'm sort of doing Waiting for Godot, but I'm setting it uh, in an African-American neighborhood with two black men as the central characters that are adrift in society in an existential crisis around police brutality. Um, and the play is built in kind of loops and rhythms and routines in a kind of vaudevillian sense, just like Godot is built. Um, so it's, I mention it for two reasons. One, that there's a contemporary play that's sort of speaking to Godot, not, not like there's, there's also been other plays that have, but in a very immediate sense, uh, in terms of sociopolitical, uh, what's happening in, in the world. Uh, but also that as a writer, Nwandu, is using a pre-existing template. So when I mentioned earlier that sometimes you take a pre-existing game design and you apply yourself to it, exactly what Antoinette did. Um, you know, she wanted to kind of, for whatever reason, and I, I've never asked her this, maybe I should, um, <laughs> maybe one day I will, but um, she wanted to use the template of Godot to kind of create this new new play. And in fact, using that structure, and then of course doing her own spin on it, uh, quite intentionally liberated her, freed her as a writer. Uh, so I, I just recommend that. I just think it's like a great way of making. You're not, you're sort of, but again, it has to come from a very deep impulse, right? This is something that Antoinette wanted to do. She wanted to respond to Goto, and she felt like the existential crisis of systemic racism in the United States, uh, especially around black men and police brutality, she felt when she was writing Passover, and she had said this in interviews, so I'm not telling anything out of school, is that she was she was really kind of emboldened by the structure of Beckett's play to apply it to a contemporary setting. Uh, so it's just something to bear in mind that absurdist theater is still with us, very much with us. It's not just something that happened in the 40s and 50s, 1940s and 1950s, uh, but that it kind of permeates uh, the work of Charlie Kaufman in film and in novels, very much in the tradition of theater of the absurd. Uh, yeah, existential crises, uh, rather than necessarily ha-ha, weird, surreal, although sometimes it has those elements about it. Uh, sort of make that clarification because I think sometimes absurdism gets like a weird, uh, people misunderstand it. And I actually think it's also a form that's actually hard to grasp until you'll see it in motion. <laughs> um, but but it's worth it's worth kind of keeping in your back of your mind. Uh, Pinter, Beckett, Landu, uh, Anne Washburn, in her play, Mr. Burns, uh, a post-electric play, definitely working with the, uh, the absurd motifs uh, in terms of form. Uh, Donald Glover in especially the first season, but also subsequent seasons of Atlanta, the TV series is also doing that. Uh, so yeah, so it's a very, it's kind of like a rich terrain, but it's also one that is slippery, I think, to get a hold of just in terms of not in terms of theater history, but also in thinking about form. Um, 
I'm going to quote Martin Eslin, uh, who coined the term theater of the absurd, just for a second. Uh, because it, he, this is how he identifies it. The hallmark of this theater is its sense that the certitudes and unshakable basic assumptions of former ages have been swept away, that they have been tested and found wanting, that they have been discredited as cheap and somewhat childish illusions. So the political fervor, I think, of Theodore Absurd is really interesting to note, because sometimes, again, I think people misread those plays. In 1969, Eslin also wrote that in many ways, the world of doubt and uncertainty he describes is still our own. Um, right. Um, I think one thing I'd like to mention about, now that I sort of said the 1960s and early 70s, um, is that there was also a, a kind of theater that I think started to happen around then that is still very much with us. Um, that was called happening, that were called happenings. So Burke Cardullo, B-E-R-T-C-A-R-D-U-L-L-O, described them as each specter, each spectator becoming the partial creator of a piece derived any meaning they might be desired for, that might be desired from the experience, thus downplaying the artist's intention or even existence. All production elements speak their own language rather than being mere supports for words, and a text need be neither the starting point nor the goal of the production. Indeed, a text is not even necessary, and therefore there may be none. In other words, fidelity to the text, that sacred tenant, which has long governed performance, has become irrelevant. So again, this is sort of a rejection of a lot of things. Realism, naturalism, <laughs> text-based work, right? Happenings, which you'll see now and kind of the remnants of it, I think you can find in some elements of street theater, some elements of immersive theater, uh, in the most grandiose sense, things like Sleep No More, which is also game design based um, in its structure. But they're happening. So no, no part of the work is privileged. The audience is the co-creator of the event, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think the audience is always a co-creator of the event because <laughs> when you make a play, there's always a gap. And that gap is for the audience to fill in. It's not a finished product until the audience is there. Um, and I think that's what separates it from film. And I think one of the interesting things that's happening in the field right now is that because we're thinking a lot about hybrid theater, film theater, where it is self-contained, how do we still retain that idea of it being a shared experience so that that audience affects the work? And in many cases, it cannot, right? If it's already pre-recorded um, and it's just streaming, the audience has no intervention, cannot affect the, cannot affect the work. Um, not even in terms of their vibration and energy, right? Which is what you have when you're live in a space together. You know this from concerts and from sporting events, right? There's a kind of energy in the room that differs from night to night. So I think that's the one thing you don't get in digital theater unless you craft, unless you're doing it live for one thing, uh, and unless you're crafting inside of it uh, an interactive, interactive components. And I think that some artists are uh, in very, very interesting ways. Um, 
Whatever your biases as a writer turn out to be, there's nothing like seeing a play to understand the demands of theater. So we'll see some in this course, uh, filmed, alas. So it's not, it's a shared experience only in the fact that we're sharing the work together. But at least it's a way to get talking about uh, choices, right? Interpretive choices, creative choices made by directors and designers, lighting, sound, costume, uh, that helps shape and impact the storytelling event. You know, design is dramaturgy. Design is storytelling. Uh, so, so what are those choices around design, right? And, and sometimes they differ or amplify in a different way, but a writer, if you're looking at text-based work, what a writer has initially uh, put down on the page uh, for their collaborators. Um, so I'm gonna say something about film, and, and this is a little bit, this is gonna sound like a rule. Um, I'm just gonna quote it, and then I'll kind of, you know, <laughs> talk about it a little bit. Most people go to movies far more often than plays, obviously. So it makes sense that if you're starting out as a playwright, if you've never attended a play before, you'll turn to the big screen for models. Being a playwright is good training for film school, but watching the movies isn't necessarily good training for playwrights. I'm gonna argue with that, but anyway, let me say this for a sec. A screenplay has many short scenes, often with minimal or no dialogue. In a play, however, scenes tend to be considerably longer five minutes, 10, 20, 30 minutes long, with greater emphasis on the character's verbal exchanges. More often, moreover, uh, movie scenes are, are shot again and again. When the camera is rolling and someone flubs a line, the actors just start over. A play, on the other hand, is live. When an actor forgets a line, there are no second takes, unless it's digital theater. Uh, play production has a sense of excitement, tension, and immediacy that is generally missing from the other creative writing genres. So uh, all of that is true to some extent. There are a lot of plays that have very short scenes. <laughs> you can work without dialogue in plays. Uh, although if you're crafting just a visual text, you, the specificity and clarity around that has to be written down in such a way that is, uh, meticulous, um, because then you're relying on that to sort of convey the event. Um, the, there are also films that feel like plays. <laughs> so Knives Out by Ryan Johnson uh, started out as a play. Couldn't get financing for it as a play, so he turned it into a movie. Um, so what I will say is that there's, and that, that film is dialogue heavy, right? Compared to other films. Um, and that's a good example of, of a film that has a play-like kind of quality about it. Uh, it's theatrical. Um, some films start out as plays, right? So Fences uh, by August Wilson, which then Denzel Washington directed as a film, started out as a play, obviously won a Pulitzer Prize. And then many, many years later, <laughs> Denzel Washington got the rights for it. And um, hence you have the film Fences, right? So, uh, and that's definitely a play. And has and what Denzel Washington has done in that film is actually he's preserved. And it's August Wilson's screenplay. So he's preserved kind of the play-likeness of it. 
even though he's opened it a bit up. Um, you still have the long scenes, you have kind of the long speeches, and he takes his time with it. You know, early, early television came out of plays. In the 1950s, they were hiring playwrights all the time. Uh, they were actually adapting plays for television. Uh, that's still happening today. Most of the people I know who work in television come from theater. <laughs> uh, uh, and in fact, you know, there's a whole field in television that's, um, you know, people who kind of look for writers that are looking for people that work in theater because one of the things about writing for the stage is that it teaches you some techniques that are a little bit different. Uh, so like everybody on Secession, the TV series, is a playwright. In fact, they're primarily playwrights. <laughs> uh, and they were hired because they were playwrights. You know, people saw their work. The people who were making sessions saw their work and were like, ooh, we want to hire you because you can write those long scenes and you're great at dialogue. You know, Aaron Sorkin, who wrote West Wing, is a playwright. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're surrounded by playwrights actually in film and in television. Uh, um, and it, I think the skill sets that come from playwrights, that ability to actually handle, uh, understand on a molecular level what dialogue does, what conversation, quote, conversation does. Conversation is an art and a craft. Uh, how you create dialectics through that, how you create rhetorical arguments, how you build them, um, how you work with silence and language. So the poetic element of that, language and silence. Um, is good to have in your back pocket if you're going to be making film. Um, so, and it's also like a different, I think, understanding of tension because I think in film you can sometimes create tension through editing, right? Um, but actually, there's something really interesting about what if you create a tension from the situation, from the situation, and how that situation is crafted and built, and that takes like a different writing muscle to execute. So I just wanted to say that because I think that sometimes there's a, there's all sorts of um, assumptions made. Um, I'll say something and then I'll argue with it a little bit. A play is not a conversation. <laughs> a good conversation may be stimulating, but most conversations meander and falter and never reach heightened intensity. In contrast, dialogue in a play is always driven by the central conflict between the characters. I will say this is not always true, <laughs> but it's good to know as a rule of thumb, just to have somewhere in the back of your mind. Um, I've seen many plays that are built on the art of conversation. I think that to be able to, to create drama out of them, because that's really what needs to happen, what's the game? What's the drama? What's the to-do? What's the action? The conversation needs to be, again, a kind of microscopic and molecular level, shifting in intention and tension by degrees. A writer who does this extremely well is the Russian author and short story writer Anton Chekhov in his plays, Three Sisters, Cherry Orchard, Seagull. I mentioned him before, I'll mention him again. I mention him because his plays are mysterious. Really hard to pull off. I, I'm still waiting to see like the best 
with the best checkout production ever. Maybe one day I will. Um, they're hard to pull off because it feels on the surface as if the plays just sort of happen. Like they occur. Characters come in and out. Um, there are relationships established, but things seem almost as if you're eavesdropping. The craft involved in that is astonishing. Uh, and I think one of the one of the tasks that I would give you, which is a task I'm stealing from the great uh, playwright Simon Stevens, uh, is that one of the things he asks his students to do uh, when he teaches playwriting, maybe first class or second class, he has them take a copy of The Seagull, uh, Anton Chekhov's play, in any, in any of the existing translations, and there are many. And he asks his students to write, transcribe the play, like literally just write it down. Not type it, although you can, although that's a different kind of exercise, but to write it. To just like write it, like word for word, just write it down in a notebook. Today I'm going to write The Seagull by Anton Chekhov and I'm going to write it down word for word exactly as this translation written. So it's The Seagull translated by. Okay, so you're doing the translation. But inevitably in that process, what you're learning, as you do with any art of transcription, adaptation and translation, which I'll talk about a little bit because it's something that I do, is that you learn... You learn how a writer's brain works, and you learn how they think about structure. In Chekhov's case, you start to learn by doing that, how he crafts those scenes. And you may say, well, if I just read the play, I'll figure it out. It's like, actually, if you like put pen to paper or decide to type it, you actually learn something else. Because writing is, is corporeal, it's in your body. Right, so it's in your mind, it's in your heart, but it's in your body, right? So, and when you are inside of it in a bodily way, and because it's work that's made for embodiment, you're experiencing it differently, you really start to learn what it takes. Um, and he chooses to have his students transcribe the seagull as a way of kind of teaching them if you do that, almost by accident, almost by default, because your body is sort of learning and absorbing as you do that, kind of muscle memory. The muscle memory is you start to learn how to write long scenes. You start to learn how to write complex, granular uh, micro shifts between and among characters. Uh, I tried this exercise recently this summer because I was feeling all sorts of things. <laughs> um, and because I'd never tried it before. And it is astonishing what happens. Um, I can't recommend it enough. Um, I decided to type instead of longhand, which is a little more taxing. But what I will say about that is that it was exhilarating. 
because I was starting to discover new writing muscles. I was like, oh, wait, like, and because I wasn't, you know, what's interesting about doing that process, which is takes a long time, but um, you're typing out a whole play, is that what was happening is that I wasn't worried about, uh, you know, I wasn't, it, there weren't my characters and I wasn't inventing the dialogue, you know what I mean? So I didn't have any pressure, you know, I was just kind of like transcribing. But in that process, I was like going line by line by line by line by line. I was like, oh my gosh, we're still in this scene. Oh my gosh, this scene is still happening. Oh, I'm learning how to write. You start to learn from inside the structural brain of another writer how to build something. I would say if you do this one exercise alone <laughs> and you're like in the beginning of your writing life, you know, uh, and thinking about plays or, or even films, uh, you'll learn almost everything. Uh, you'll learn everything. No, not everything, but you'll learn a lot. Um, and you'll certainly learn, I mean, one of the tricks is to do this with several writers. And when I was in undergraduate school, uh, I did similar thing, but not quite the same. I wanted to analyze the work of three different playwrights. At that time, I wanted to analyze the work of Beckett, uh, Sam Shepard, and um, Tom Stoppard. And I think my it was like an independent study project, and I was trying to, it was theoretical. I thought it would be like, you know, I think that they have things in common as writers, thematically and structurally. But what I really want to do is look at the music of their work and, and look at their scores. So if you think of text on a page as a musical score, which I think is also a helpful way of thinking about it as kind of like a game, a game, a sort of musical game, and to use the other metaphor, if these are just notes and harmony and melody and, you know, what is the orchestra doing if there's an orchestra or is it a band or is it just a one instrument, right? If you think of it that way, uh, you're, I really wanted to look at the undergirders of the store of the plays of these three writers in a similar way to this exercise of transcribing the seagull. Right. You're trying to look for the undergirders. So you're trying to put yourself in that space where you're not worried so much about theme and character and intention and conflict, but you're thinking about long line, short line, complex thought line, shorter line, the sonority of that line. How many syllables does it have? Like, you know, like purely technical. And I did that with, I think, three plays from each of those three writers and just kind of mapped out the musical score. Painstaking, by the way. How many syllables for each line? How many lines in each dialogue section? Um, what I was looking at is I was analyzing patterns, musical patterns and rhythmic patterns in their work. And trying to think about structure from a musical standpoint, but also uh, literally from a structural standpoint, like what is the architecture of it? 
and less around character plot. Because I think sometimes when we think of character plot and all those things, we forget about the under the foundations of how it, of what it's built upon. Uh, and so I that exercise, uh, which I did as an independent study when I was an undergrad, um, was one that I really had in my back pocket as a writer, early career writer, for you know, I would say the first sort of 10 years of my writing career, I clung to that. Like it was something I kept going back to. I started to build my plays. I would build them and then I would like study the undergirder of the play that I just built. Um, because I started to look at, it's a great tool for editing too, because you start to think about like, oh, how many lines do I have? I have like five lines to two, to three, to four, to five, to six, to 12, to 20, right? You start to sort of look at the music and sometimes the patterns are too similar and that's not intentional. And you're like, oh, I got to fix that, right? So uh, it's also a good way to check yourself. But um, what I will say just as a analytical framework, our foundational exercise it's really helpful. So I would say like, if you're reading a play, transcribe the play, look at the undergirder, study the foundational aspects of that play from a technical standpoint, from a purely technical standpoint. Be a naturalist with it in that sense, be that scientific gaze upon it. Uh, and you'll probably learn everything, uh, nearly everything, uh, as well as acquire like new writing muscles along the way. Which is, all, which is, as a writer, you're always trying to do. There's the stuff that you're always interested in as a writer, and there's the stuff that you acquire uh, that teaches you some things about how to move forward, but also empowers you and empowers your uh, toolkit, uh, which you're going to need because, you know, at some point in your writing life, somebody may say, write this or write that or write a comedy, write a tragedy, write a, <laughs> and you'll be like, I don't know how to do that. And you're like, well, you don't get the job, right? So I think that just on a super practical level, understanding some of the techniques and some of the forms is really helpful. I will say that forms are there to be subverted as well, but they're also just forms, right? So, you know, today I'll make a chair, tomorrow I'll make a vase, tomorrow, the next day I'll make a lamp. Do you know what I mean? So I think of thinking of plays that way, like what kind of different objects are they going to be also frees you up. So backtracking and thinking about undergirders, transcription, as ways to think about the art object. It's really all you're doing, right? Especially when you're studying craft. Um... And think about the own the art objects that then you want to make, right? Um, which is why I say if there's a you know when Antoinette Noandu wrote Passover, that idea of like building on the template that already existed of Godot, actually she's having a conversation with Beckett in her play to some extent by doing that, um, freed her up to discover and make what she wanted to make. Um, so it doesn't mean that it's slavish. Uh, uh, and its interpretation and its application, I should say. 
so I just wanted to say that. And also that because I said the play is not a conversation, but it is. Um, it's a conversation with the audience. So I think, think of it this way. A play is a conversation with the audience. What is the kind of conversation that it's having? It could be, you know, it could be a confrontational conversation. It could be um, a meditative one. It could be an intimate one. It could, you know what I mean? So I think that um, it's something to bear in mind. This is something I'm going to argue with as well, but I'll say it anyway, because I think it's good to be dialectical. Uh, a play is not an essay. Well, sometimes it is. But anyway, an essay is a document meant to explain things. Its main purpose is to convince an audience that a particular point of view is correct. I don't think that's true, but I'm just laying that down because sometimes that's how people think about essays. Plays, in contrast, value ambiguity. Now, that I do believe in. Plays value ambiguity. Even though plays often address relevant contemporary universal issues, universal, I have a problem with that word, and even though some characters may be more right than others, good playwrights, good, I hate that word, playwrights always try to see the world from the perspective of all their characters. Okay, so that's a lot of, that's a lot to parse through. A play sometimes can be an essay. In fact, I've seen many plays that are that. Uh... Uh, you could argue that Phoebe Waller-Bridge's play Fleabag, which then became the streaming series on Amazon, is an essay of sorts. You know, it's a solo piece, started out as a solo piece. And it's kind of like an essay, she's essaying the idea of the female in society, sexuality, Grief, a character caught in a moment of a, a place of extreme grief in her life, um, wrestling with uh, her sexual drive uh, and what it means and how it's interpreted in the world, um, and her sense of self. So it, that that play actually is sort of an essay. <laughs> it has a thesis of sorts, and it does meander and spiral and explode and find itself, uh, to, to use Jane Allison's term. If you don't know Jane Allison, great book, Meander, Spiral, Explode, which is about structure. Uh, Allison spelled A-L-I-S-O-N. Um, but plays do revel in ambiguity, and I think the more that they revel in ambiguity, where the sides aren't clear, where it's not just goody and batty, um, gets you into a really interesting place because it's a it's an arena for thought, right? All plays are thought experiments, um, and that means that then the audience is invited into that thought experiment. Uh, their audience is there to sometimes to reflect upon what the ambiguity of that moral arena is. Um, and I, and I think that's a very that's a very very rich terrain for a writer. If the if the moral ground is super clear, you have actually less to work with in terms of the writing. Um, uh, another way to put this is that all characters have flaws if you're writing with characters. So uh, no no one person is entirely entirely good. No one person is entirely seemingly evil, 
although sometimes it's hard to fathom. But um, yeah, but it, but but I think that you know even I'll use the Shakespeare example just because it's coming to mind. But in Richard the Third, you know, famously, that character is a monster, right? He's horrible. He does horrible things in that play. He uh, you know. He does anything to kind of get to power. He climbs over people. He murders. He, I mean, just horrible. But uh, as a writer, uh, Shakespeare does something really interesting that Richard, love him or hate him, uh, certainly the actions are reprehensible. And that's not, a, that's not up for grabs. But the, what's driving those actions is ambiguous. And that makes it really interesting as drama. Uh, some people really hate that play, you know, so, and I have mixed feelings about it. But what I will say is that that strategy of Shakespeare's in that play is really, really fascinating. Uh, Jeremy Harris, Jeremy O. Harris, um, whose play, Slave Play, that's the name of it, uh, was on Broadway earlier this year, which feels like a lifetime ago. Um, in that play, each, it's built in three acts, and each act is deep, deeply ambiguous um, on every level in terms of what the moral arena is that the characters are operating in and where it places the audience. The audience is put in a very uncomfortable place in that play in all three acts. Um, and it's a strategy that Jeremy uses as a writer to, to kind of waken, you know, wake us up, uh, but also to make us question biases and belief systems and value systems and yeah, many, many things. So, so, and in that sense, I think plays can be essays. Um, just wanted to put that out there. Um, there's a writer, very old, old school, old school writer, early 20th century. Yes, very early 20th century from Ireland, J.M. Singe. His work doesn't get done very much anymore, but I'm going to have, a, here's a quote from him. Drama is made serious, not by the degree in which it is taken up with problems that are serious in themselves, but by the degree in which it gives the nourishment, not easy to define, on which our imaginations live. I'm going to say that again. It's such a really pretty cool quote. I had forgotten about this quote. Drama is made serious, not by the degree in which it is taken up with problems that are serious in themselves but by the degree in which it gives the nourishment not easy to define on which our imaginations live. We should go to the theater as we go to dinner where food we need is taken with pleasure and excitement. It's kind of a beautiful quote. Um, yeah. And I think there's an interesting because he talks about pleasure and excitement. Uh, and I think sometimes we forget about pleasure as writers, but there's something pleasurable about 
witnessing a game play thing <laughs> that they're that they're that at its heart there is something that is pleasing um, satisfying I think that's why when people use the word satisfying interesting because singe talks about food but uh yeah there's something satisfying and people use that word all oh, that was satisfying to see or experience I felt like that was a full meal or, you know, those, those metaphors that we use uh, sometimes when we think about art. Um, but I think we make them because it has to do with pleasure. It has to do with, it was satisfying because it made me feel X, Y, Z. It was satisfying because, you know, uh, it, it, it was beautiful. You know, it was spectacular. It was uh, mysterious. Uh, it was eerie. Um, and that, you know, and you know, the brain sort of was like, "Ooh, I love that, right? You know, so I think that there's an aspect of pleasure that's always at the heart of dramatic writing uh, on top of everything else. Um, you know, and sometimes it's about just giving an audience a dessert, you know, giving them, giving the audience and your performers, you know, in the play itself, moments to breathe, for example. Um Moments of lightness, if you're writing a super dark play, is there a moment where it kind of lifts and isn't that so that you feel like, oh, thank you. You're giving me a little bit of pleasure amidst all of this. Uh, humor is sometimes used that way. If you're not writing a flat out comedy, if you're writing a, you know, a more serious or a dark play, humor is a way sometimes to inject that kind of pleasurable element. There's also the pleasure of bodies and space with each other and how they interact with each other. Uh, physicality of bodies, um, running, jumping, leaping, diving into each other's arms, things that feel really intense and physical, um, the use of the space. That also can be very pleasurable to witness. Uh, Anne Bogart is a great director, uh, always says there's nothing more beautiful than seeing an actor walk across the stage. They don't have to do sort of do anything else, but if they're walking across the stage, it's really beautiful. You're seeing a body emotion, and that's what she's talking about. That that's an essential act of pleasure. Um, and Singe uses the word excitement, which I think is interesting, which I think is related to tension, but it's more to do with the thrill of things, right? So again, it's like going beyond the ho hum. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know what's going to happen, or oh wow, that's like an amazing moment, or things that that's sort of the endorphin levels go up and your uh, the, the work, the art object commands attention in a certain way. And, and that can be, again, in a very small way, small, kind of intimate and, and very profound, but it can also be spectacular and uh, roaring. And so I think one of the reasons sometimes people like musicals and, uh, and the opera is because that element of excitement is very high, right? So... Uh, you're getting kind of like, you know, work that's happening at level 10, you know, as opposed to level seven. Um, so, so yeah, but I think it's, it's good to put in the mix somewhere in your brain, pleasure and excitement. Uh, and that, that there's something that you're igniting the imagination. You're igniting that you're not just your own and your collaborators, uh, but also the audiences. Um, and what I say about igniting your own and the collaborators is that um, 
there's a writer named Eduardo Machado, uh, a Cuban-American writer. Now, he used to be in New York, but now he's based in L.A. Um, and he, I always remember this, this is so true, is that he said, if it's not fun, the play is not fun for the actors to even read, let alone perform, you're not doing your job. That's related to pleasure and excitement. You know, it's like, it should be fun. And then this goes back way back to the idea of the infinite playground, that you're, do you're designing a game, and at some level that game should be fun. And, and you'll, you'll talk to actors who'll be doing like Medea or Oedipus, and they'll be like, oh my God, this big tragedy. And they're like, I'm having so much fun. Because <laughs> they have things to do, right? You know what I mean? So I think that thinking it that way is like, what's the, not as not in a outside in um, and, um, overt way, like let me stick some fun in my play, but more like in the spirit of making it, keep that alive for yourself. Uh, which is hard when the world is falling apart or, you know, things are in an existential minefield. But I think that one of the beauties of writing at its purest, purest levels is that it has this aspect of nourishing, of kind of being, that has an element of delight about it. And, and inside of that, there is also the element of the wound, right? There's the element of, Often, I think, from the writer's perspective, you're digging at stuff that may be painful for you or that is traumatic or that is troubling or that you're just working through. You know, I think one of the one of the things about writing is that you're just working through your stuff sometimes. <laughs> um, and you're using, again, the vehicle of a story and characters and different forms to kind of work that stuff out. Um, and hopefully, you know, that it goes beyond that, right? That you're not just working your stuff out, but that it connects with other people and uh, it may speak to the larger culture and so forth. Uh, so that's, that's worth saying because I think that sometimes we don't trust that as writers, you know. And I think that even, it's weird, I'm just going to say that even in that space of, even in the space of, you know, I'm, I'm crying and I'm writing and I'm crying and I'm writing. <laughs> um, there is something pleasurable about releasing it. Yeah? You're kind of releasing stuff, too. And again, especially in a first draft, and then when you're in revision, you need to kind of sharpen everything. But that, that's a beautiful sense of release, and I think a really important one, actually, for writers, especially in plays. Uh, yeah, and then a release for the audience. I think the, then the audience is sort of released. Uh, there's more, there's more, but I'm going to leave it there because that's a lot for one day. <laughs> that's a lot for one day. Um, and, you know... Um, other things are fairly basic, but I wanted to start there as a kind of big old like wraparound primer for the course and what we're doing.
why we're doing it and stuff like that. So there you go. Uh, thanks for listening. I hope you're listening. I hope you're taking notes. I hope you're just kind of letting it all sink in somehow. And uh, there you go.